This is Talk is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. So no stranger to the podcast, you've been on before as a guest, but now you're officially co-host of Talk is Sheep. Welcome, Mr. Jesse Bone. Thank you, Kyle. Officially? Well, I didn't know anything was official. I was just told to do this. It's very official. <laughs> it's going, it's, yeah, well, that's, that's how we roll, buddy. It's like, do we have anyone to do this? Yes, Jesse's doing it. Okay, perfect. So No, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to. I like, um, I mean, this is what I do for a living, talking to people and getting to know kind of what makes them tick and kind of drilling down what the truth of the matter is or, or digging into someone's personality or, or their story or, or something like that. So um, it's, it's a passion and I love to do it. So um, if it's official, I'm happy to be here. And you're bloody good at it. So for our listeners, some of you know Jesse's been on. He's the obviously director of the society, but uh, much bigger than that, he is the architect of Transmission, uh, the film of the Wild Sheep Society BC was involved in. We reached out to the good people over at Filter Studios, and uh, Jesse and Tash did a wonderful job of putting this together. Um, what's going on with Transmission? Let's talk about where we're at, when awards, when do, when do we get to see it? Everyone, I get Honestly, I get an email every three days or somebody reaches out, when can I see that freaking film? Yeah. It's uh, so we're per, I, I think we're going through uh, the last festival just wrapped up um, the Colorado Environmental Film Festival. Um, so that's our last one. Um, and now the long awaited date that everyone's been waiting for is public release. So probably closer to the end of March, um, we'll be doing it. Um, we're going to plan uh, exactly where it's going to live online, uh, most likely the Wild Sheep Society BC's um, social channel. Um, but it's it's finally here. It's had a really good um, um, run in the festival circuit. We won three best environmental film um, awards. Um, we've won awards for emotional impact. We were a finalist, and we presented it at the Banff Mountain Film Festival, which was great. You know, one of our goals that I keep talking about every time I present it is that we want to, you know, our a goal, especially from you know um, the Wild Sheep Society, was to speak outside our typical echo chamber of, of, uh, of our conservation world and um, going to Banff and presenting the film there to a theater full of people um, in a genre of, you know, mountain sports. So, you know, we're, we're hanging out there, this conservation film, this emotional film that's amongst, you know, Red Bull athletes, um, you know, kayakers, mountain climbers, skiers, all that kind of stuff. And we come up with this uh, kind of emotionally impactful um conservation film about sheep and it happens to be in Banff and there's sheep around. And so people really got it. So it anyways, it was really, really good. And I felt like that was exactly what we were trying to do and, and to make an impact um, beyond um, just everyone who already knows about the issue and stuff. So um, it's done really well. Um, we're all really proud of it. Um, and um, it's finally time to release it to the world on a public scale. So everybody uh, can see it. it. Like you said, I keep getting emails Um weekly for screener requests and and you know when can we see it when can we see it and um you know my uh main job over the past year has been just telling people <laughs> and defending why we're doing a film festival circuit and why we're kind of keeping it under wraps uh, but i'm confident that it was the right decision and we've done really well in that space and now it's time to uh to release it to the public so coming soon before april end of march 
Awesome. Well, congratulations, Jesse. It's uh, really exciting to be part of this and and your leadership and just what you guys put together as professionals from Filter. It's uh, I just hear so many good good things about it. Uh, one thing I've seen um, working with the society, I work, sit on the Fraser River Working Group, which is a collaboration of First Nations and government and, and the society, and we're doing work on the Fraser for. Uh, the test and remove project that we're involved in, which is fe- featured in transmission. This has been a very impactful tool. You've uh, been involved with a bunch of uh, First Nations communities sharing that film and trying to get them to understand what's happening with test and remove. They see helicopters out there killing sheep and they're like, these people are bad. This is not a good mm-hmm. thing. But transmission does a better job, does a fantastic job of telling that story. So I feel that it's been very impactful in that realm as well. So it's just bu- building so many bridges. Um, there's so, so many disconnects communication-wise, and transmission's been really, really effective. Yeah, and I think that was that was another goal of it being a tool, which you know it's it's been successful in its in its film festival circuit and these private screenings and these events. Um, but now it's going to be even more broadly used and and be able to bring more communities on board. Um, you know, we had one example, we sh- showed it in Lillooet, which is kind of where a lot of the capture work is that we filmed is based around there anyways, around the Fraser. Um, and we showed it to the community. The local biologists were trying to get traction there with, with local governments. And the day after the screener, our, our biologists got an email from local governments that they're putting pressure on their internal um, leadership to, to move on this project. So it works. Um, and now it going public, um, we screened it to, a, a, a test and remove, uh, working group at cheap show, um, in Reno. And, you know, it's where all the experts that deal with this disease for a long time are in one room and they all watched it and we're just itching to have it available to use because they have communities that they need to introduce the idea of what these, what this work is and what this disease is and how we need to deal with it. Um, and this is a, a tool that can be used that way. Awesome. So for our listeners, if you're keen, we're actually, we're dropping this the day, the week before of our AGM and Kamloops convention. We have our AGM on March 10th at 2 p.m. We're going to do a screening at 12.30, so come for the transmission, stay for the AGM. So that's that's our <laughs> – instead of come for the sheep, stay for the party, come for transmission, stay for the AGM. Okay, that was bad, but yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, good opportunity to watch the film there. It's going to be in Kamloops, uh, so you have to be registered, uh, but you can still buy tickets for the uh, – the Friday, and you can come check things out for um, transmission and our AGM and all that good stuff. So, uh, Kamloops this weekend, it's going to be a great, great show. S- super stoked about that. So, now this is um, uh, what made us think about transmission, made me think about it was Chester Moore. Now, Chester did a podcast with you recently. I think it dropped in January on transmission. Mm-hmm. Chester got to see it at the Chapter and Affiliate Summit in. Um, was it San Antonio yeah. this past summer? And uh, he's a, a fantastic fellow, Ch- uh, Chester. He runs uh, the Higher Calling. Higher Calling Wildlife, I think is the name of his platform. He's also an editor for Texas Fish and Game uh, for their magazine. Does a great job in the media realm. Fantastic guy, a huge advocate for wild sheep. And uh, he joined us on episode 117, Chester Moore, um, to talk about all, all kinds of stuff. We have, uh, it's kind of a, you know, we really didn't have a theme what we're going to hit on and it kind of kind of hit the one campfire theme a little bit, I think. Um, 
Yeah. Talked a bit about that. Yeah, I met Chester in San Antonio earlier last year um, and um, just instantly connected with, um, you know, both being storytellers and both kind of telling stories in, in, a, in a real authentic way and, and connecting to, to how we did that. You know, we met when we... Uh, we watched transmission and then he, as a, as a journalist stood up and asked some questions and I was quite surprised that he had such a level of understanding, um, of storytelling and, you know, then got to know him more and, and got to know kind of where, where he comes from and what he does. And yeah, he's very talented. Um, he just, I just like listening to his accent, that drawl that he has is just, <laughs> it's just a pleasure, um, to listen to. And that, the, the, like Southern, uh, pacing and draw. It's, it's, uh, it's good. He's an interesting cat. I uh, just love talking to him and, and just, you'll, you know, on the podcast, you'll hear about this, but the, uh, the kindness and compassion and the good work he's doing, um, through his ministry and supporting youth and, uh, you know, people that have had a pretty hard time in life. And then I, I love the connection, you know, and I, we talk about it on the podcast is, ministry go we talk about god we talk about when then we talk about conservation we talk about kids and bringing those three together and it's kind of a you, you wouldn't necessarily sit down with a pen and paper and connect those three but chester does a darn good job of doing it so yeah and, and i think he's got really the interesting thing that i kind of from 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 doing the or, or chatting with him anyways of uh, he has such clarity in what he's doing um, mm-hmm. he's got good clarity on, on what his purpose is and what his intentions are and, and kind of how he gets, um, uh, motivation. And, and we talked about it on, on the podcast about, you know, he, he's really putting a lot of time into the future generations of conservationists, uh, professional and volunteer. Um, he's really laying a lot of groundwork to a lot of kids that are coming from a really tough place, but, um, him and his wife are doing really good work and, and, the just it's inspiring how much clarity um, he has in his work and 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 his purpose. Yeah, well said. So with that, off to episode one seventeen with Chester Moore. Enjoy. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Frontiersman Gear. Thank you, Sitka Gear and Frontiersman Gear, for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Mr. Chester Moore, we're uh, st- super stoked to have you on the podcast today. Jesse's co-hosting, and uh, welcome to the podcast, Talk is Sheep. Awesome to have you on, brother. Dude, it's an honor and privilege, and uh, great to connect with you guys here after the Sheep Show. And also, anytime I can connect and talk about wild sheep and wildlife, I'm down. So, Right on. Well, this is the, a good place for it. And we're just talking about artists and creativity, and we're pretty blessed. I'm in... The presence of two uh, masters here and oh, uh, two masters. different kind of realms, but uh, um, yeah, really keen to talk about uh, wildlife conservation, uh, the media space, and and the the great stuff you're doing out there in Texas. But um, I guess Chester, for our listeners, let's just kick it right off about who you are, where you come from, and what kind of work you're doing. Okay, so I'm a wildlife journalist from Texas. I live in the eastern extreme of Texas, as far away from sheep country as you can possibly get literally in Texas on the Louisiana border. And uh, I've been doing this uh, wildlife journalism thing since I was 19 years old for a long, long time. And a writer, I'm the editor-in-chief of Texas Fish and Game Magazine. I, uh, I have a, a radio show that's also a podcast, two podcasts on top of that, write for a bunch of stuff, do lectures, have a ministry outreach involving wildlife and uh, yeah, I stay pretty busy. 
It sounds uh, sounds a bit hectic, and I, I was cruising your your gram there before we jumped on, and you you said you put like sixteen hundred hours into the ministry alone. Yeah, me is my, that is that right? Or? That, that's legit because we, um, you know, me and my wife, my wife quit her job eight years ago to do this uh, so we can make it make it happen. She was a school teacher, and um, so we got to feed. You know, if you factor just two hours of feeding and cleaning a day, our animal facility. And just add that up alone and you're at 700 hours and then you add everything else. So it's a lot of it's a lot of time, but it's worth it because we get to engage kids that are going through great struggles and wildlife. And then somehow out of that, we've been really blessed to be able to connect a lot of kids with conservation and working on giving kids that are struggling a purpose through conservation, especially through the North American model. So that's that's it's all worth it, man. It's uh, every once in a while I complain a little bit, but uh it's it's all worth it in the long run. Really, really, really enjoy this stuff. You kind of touched on a lot of things there. We have like six podcasts worth of content right there, buddy. So um, let's start off, I guess. Let's talk about the crossover between ministry, conservation, kids. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the heart of what you do there, I think, yeah, uh, yeah, if, I, yeah. if I understand correctly. So touch on that for us and, you know, what that looks like, why it's so important and, and how, how does that how do those come? Because a lot of people, when they think about spirituality and and uh, I guess you know religion and church, they don't think first of wildlife, right? And, no. and vice versa. So let's 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 pick that apart a bit. Yeah, you know, uh, our mission is to bring the love of Christ to hurting kids through wildlife encounters. And eleven years ago, we founded this outreach, and uh, we work with kids in the foster system, kids that have terminal illness, parental loss, and recently, for the last two years. We've been working with kids that have gone through sex trafficking and we have a facility with about 40 species of small exotic animals that do kind of therapeutic sessions with us. But what was born out of that was um, we saw kids coming in like the office here and they'll see like a, an elk mount or a turkey mount. And they're like, what's all that about? And they got really interested in this conservation work that I do. So four years ago, we founded the higher calling wildlife branch of that, which is also the name of my, my chief podcast there. And that mentors teens in that to do conservation work. We put out a magazine with them. We do this. Sometimes they're podcast guests or production. Uh, we take them on expeditions. We've done expeditions all throughout Texas. We've done expeditions in Florida. We've done expeditions in Colorado. And to take those kids that are going through these great struggles that often don't get the chance to do these things and say, hey, conservation is a great thing. They already love wildlife. Let's figure out you can get some skin in the game on helping it. And um, to me, it makes perfect sense, but I'm not like the Mr. Religion guy, like uh, I'm more in the relational realm of it. So I just go, okay, if kids need help, I like to hunt and fish and do wildlife. We're going to make this work. And somehow it's worked, you know? So, you know, we see this crossover, right? And it, you know, quite often people, people, everyone loves animals as a general rule, we see yeah. that, right? And then yeah. we have, uh, but then people see dead animals and they see that you're a hunter and you kill things and yeah. you're a consumptive user. Um, you know, are you able, are you, are you building that relationship before you get to that point before people are like, Oh, and this guy also kills things. Um, because lots of times we lose people, right? We, we, we can't yeah. even have that conversation cause we never get there. They just look at us as, you know, Elmer Fudd with our, our shotgun and our, you know, plaid dress and, and, and it all comes off the rails. But, you know, I guess you build that relationship before you get to that point and people see that you're a good guy, you're doing good things. Um, you're, you know, you're, your connection with Christ and all these other things. And then 
you have that conversation. It's an easy conversation. How does that work? Is it is it difficult to make that jump for you? No, not really. Uh, with the kids, it's not. Sometimes parents, it's interesting. You know, you get people with agendas and ideas. That, that gets a little interesting. Um, I've had a few situations, but, you know, if they come in for what we do and they walk into the office, there's dead stuff everywhere, you know. And uh, and in on our culture in, in East Texas, where a lot of these kids come from, you know, the hunting and fishing thing is a lot more accepted than it may be in other parts of the country. But we definitely get that. And what's interesting, I've had a few industry people over the years ask me questions. And this really got me riled up and, I, and it got me on a soapbox, which doesn't take a whole lot. But what happened was I've been asked a couple of times, like, are you going green or are you going anti? Because I have a zoological facility. So I'm like, so I can be into hunting and fishing and tout our greatness for helping wildlife, but I can't keep animals alive too. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I've heard some stupid stuff, but um, most of the time it's, um, it's, it's that relationship. The kids are coming in for help and they're into it. And I've really only with the, I've never had a one kid like they may have asked a couple of questions, but they really opened. They, they saw the conservation thing like that. Um, I did have a funny story with the parent. We really don't do a lot of work with the public in general because our public is hurting children. There's enough of that. That's what we do. But we do some outreach and we I let a scout group talk me into letting these Girl Scouts come one day and to have a little like session for what they were doing. And my backdrop was this mountain lion. You can't see this dead mountain lion over here. And, um, and as I'm, and as this, the, one of the moms walked in and had a look as soon as she locked eyes on my cat and I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. Right. So I hear her tell her, tell her friend, those are an endangered species. I can't believe he's talking conservation and killed an endangered species. And normally I just anno- avoid that stuff, but every kid heard it. She caught me on the right day. So I said, excuse me, kiddos. Ma'am, did you just say that I killed an endangered species? She goes, yes, those cougars are an endangered species. I said, you know, not to be rude, but you picked the wrong guy in Orange, Texas to debate endangered species and conservation. You could have picked anybody in Orange. You got the wrong one today. And she goes, well, I'm telling you right now. I said, look it up. Where would I look it up? And I thought that was hilarious. I told her about the IUCN, you know, and go look up and see what their status is. She goes, species of least concern (laughs) you know i've had like that couple of little things like that happen but so far on social media we'll get stuff you know from the general public but with the kids it's really an easy connection and we have kids that like don't necessarily say i may never hunt but i get what it's about and i want to contribute to conservation anyway we've had that and i'm cool with that that's fine as long as they agree with what we do and they're able to support this model of conservations works so well. I think that's a win. We can't convert everyone to being a hunter, but if we can convert them enough to understand that we are the epicenter of conservation in North America and many places globally, and they'll support us at the ballot box and maybe join groups that support conservation. To me, that's a win. Chester. Um, hey, Kyle, is it all right if I talk now? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, no, I was just uh, sitting here in the background, um, listening and, and thinking about um, experiences I've had too with connecting to animals and kind of. I have some friends that have like an equestrian rehabilitation facility, and yeah. just kind of this um, idea that 
animals provide something external or some kind of yep. connection that we can't get without them, mm-hmm. you know, and as mm-hmm. hunters and as conservationists, we, we live and breathe that, you know, we, we have yep. this connection to these wild species in the mountains and because we can just see them or because we have some kind of connection to them, then, you know, we can carry that through and that can get us through things. A lot of us work through a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in the mountains and, and a lot of things as we're connecting with these animals. So I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on especially having a zoology, zoology I can't even say zoology facility, uh-huh. big words for me, sorry. Um, and just what, what you think that means to um, a connection on a higher level and connection to um, introduce healing and to introduce kind mm-hmm. of working through stuff. So what do you think that connection to um, animals does for people? It's, it's really remarkable. Um, I was blessed to have that my whole life as a fisherman and a hunter and didn't know I had it, you know, just that that was a place I would go and I would feel free in the wild, you know, whether I had a rod and reel in my hand, I know a rifle on my shoulder packing through the woods to go deer hunting or whatever. But when we see kids come and we've had kids come and if there is not a situation a kid has been through that we haven't had and uh, as bad as it can get. And I have never one time had a kid leave that wasn't smiling, not once. And the animals don't judge them. You know, that's the thing. The animals don't judge them. Mm -hmm. And there's something kind of wild and free even about animals in a captive setting. So when they're here hand feeding my African crested porcupine or, you know, getting to pet a red fox or, you know, feeding big sulcata tortoises or wrapping a boa constrictor around their neck. Uh, they, they become free and they sense there's something about the wild and, and animals represent that, that we know that there's a freedom there. There's just, they live in, in, in and there's a freedom in how they live in, in, in the world. And I think that translates to kids. We also, you mentioned equine. That's a wonderful thing. We have too many horses that were donated to us by Whispering Ponies Ranch. We use those in our, in our sessions as well. And, um, but when you go out with the expedition part, we've started that takes it to an entirely new level because you take a kid that's never been in the mountains. We've done two of these in Colorado, had a kid in Colorado that never been to the mountains and he lives 40 miles from mountains. Right. And their eyes are like, what? This is a world too. This is like, this isn't just a picture on Instagram. This is a real thing. And all of a sudden, the world that's maybe constricted them because of an abuse or a neglect, and they think, because what happens is when something, a tragedy, a trauma happens, we especially young people, whenever, if it happens on March 16th, 2021, we think life will never get better than March the 15th, 2021. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's this beauty, there's this grandeur, maybe things can get better. And I think it's like a bridge to healing and to seeing that the world has a lot of good things to offer, you know? Yeah, I think as as someone who spends time in the time in the mountains, I can connect with that. Is that's kind of, you know, exactly those feelings, that sense of freedom and and wilding that you, you don't get in the day to day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even an old flatlander like me in the swamps of Southeast Texas, where I love the swamps, the first time I went up to the mountains, it's like, dude, this is the coolest place I've ever been in my life. You know, they're, they're, even the mountains to me are like a higher level of that. Even then the, the wild's great anywhere, whether it's in the 
you know, the, the, the fly fishing flats of Biscayne Bay in Florida or wherever. But when something about the mountains and like the, the wild sheep and the mountain goats and the things that live in these high places are so awe-inspiring, you know, and um, we've had some pretty incredible stuff. And we've even had a really incredible uh, outreach we did with a, with a kid with bighorn sheep that was one of the transformational things we ever did. Let's hear about it. <laughs> okay, cool. I was like, I had a little break there. Ah, okay. So in 2019, we have a girl named Rihanna Holloway, and Rihanna has cystic fibrosis. And her dream was to meet a sea turtle. And uh, her friend Lauren, who just lost her father, her dream was to meet a sea turtle. And through our friends at the Amos Research Keep in Port Aransas, Texas, they got to go release injured, rehabbed green sea turtles in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, Rihanna was starting uh, college that semester and um, struggling in her health. A lot of things going on, bombed out that semester, kind of called me and my wife and said she wanted to have a meeting with her and her family, talk about her life moving forward. You know, when when a kid with cystic fibrosis tells you that, you you get a little nervous. Well, the meeting was that her sea turtle encounter was so transformational. She wanted to become a wildlife conservationist somehow and not go for the degree she was going for. And we... I, I wrote this mega list of all these different ways you could become involved and things. And I'm happy to report uh, this December, Rihanna is graduating from Texas Tech University with a wildlife management degree. And um, one of the things, so between that talk and she wanted to get involved in conservation, Texas Parks and Wildlife was kind enough to let us bring her on a desert bighorn capture Elephant Mountain Wildlife Management Area. She got to watch the the bighorns come off the mountain on the tether on the copter. And the Parks and Wildlife guys were so cool because everybody's there wanting to collar a sheep and ear tag a sheep. And they said, your girl is going to do everything they get to do today. And they waited for the biggest ram of the day. And they said, batter up. And they let her put the GPS collar on that. And that inspired her to go from, I'm going to do something in conservation to get in that wildlife management degree. And it was just so cool because it gave her a purpose she hadn't had before, you know, and uh, and it still blows her mind that she got to do this. She tells me I'm still mind blown. I talked to her about a week ago um, that I ever got to go put my hands on a bighorn sheep, you know. So uh, I'm like, hey, I was just as mind blown. That was the, that was the sheep capture I got to go and I've never been on one before. So I was just as mind blown as you were, kiddo. That's uh, super cool, man. Um, Chester, let's talk a little bit about that. Like you, you get kids come in that kids that, you know, problematic kids that are having troubles in their personal life and trying to get them sorted out and you get that connection with wildlife. How, what's that next step to the conservation side? Um, is it just natural? Does it just free flow or is that something that you guys are pretty deliberate and you're teaching or, or what's, you know, uh, cause there's a big difference between somebody coming in and, and, you know, the connection with God and then the, yeah. the zoo, but now yeah. the conservation side, that's a whole new thing. So how does that yeah, Talk about you know, that for us. It's not every kid. Every kid gets conservation. We give them gifts and all these. It's like a birthday party when they come here. I mean, they get like $100 worth of gifts and cool stuff, animal stuff. We research what their favorite animals are. We put all this stuff together. But they get they get conservation-centric stuff. Every kid gets a uh, uh, some information from the Wild Sheep Foundation that we, we put out. Every kid gets uh, information from the National Wild Turkey Federation that we're given with our partners there as well. And uh, I have a, I have these four different sets of books that I grew up loving, and and they were like encyclopedia wildlife books and the and the wild world of books from time life books, and I've gotten dozens of copies of those on eBay, 
and I'll, and I'll give them, I'll sign them. These are my favorite books. You know, hope this finds you and you can do great things for wildlife. And, uh, we give them a chance to follow up with us. But typically what happens on the conservation, it's a little bit older kids. So we have kids of any age can come through up to 18 years old. It's usually those like 14 to, you know, 18 year olds that we can take on these expeditions because of the maturity level required to do some of these things. And uh, we'll keep up with parents and things. But most of the time when I tell them about the conservation thing here and you see their eyes light up, that's the kid you follow up with, you know, and they, Oh, I want to be involved in that. Like our latest hire, like this latest edition, we did a higher calling. Sorry about that. Higher calling wildlife. We have seven articles and different photos and essays and things written by kids just in this magazine. So we're giving them a platform and things like that. So it's finding which ones are really interested in the conservation element. It's not all of them. It's at this point, it's probably going to be about 20% of them. But uh, we believe that the ones that are really into it, we can invest that time in, you know, Matter of fact, I'm talking with a biologist right now, Macy Ledbetter from Spring Creek. There's a private biologist doing a wild turkey release next week. And uh, he's going to be texting me the morning the birds are caught. We got some kids that are going to go on a wild turkey release next week in East, in East Texas. So it's finding the kids that are bent that way and finding a way to give them. Maybe they're an artist. We have a kid, Hannah, who loves art, conservation art. My God, how many sheep uh, raffles that have some kind of awesome art artwork or something that's all auctioned off or a silent auction item. She, we took her on an expedition to do photography and she did artwork from the photography, which was a red sheep. And we, we did an art signing for her. She sold limited prints and we raised money for other kids to go on expeditions. So it's finding where they're gifted and talented and what they want to be involved in. And not all kids are in, are into that, but the ones that are, we find out pretty quick. Yeah. Very exciting, man. Um, yeah. And, you know, with that cons- conservation, uh, part of it, you, you know, you talk about sharing, uh, literature from wild sheep foundation. And, uh, I know you guys do a ton of Turkey work and, and yep. other species too. Are, do, do you guys go into the, um, the, the North American wildlife management conservation model? Do you guys hit on that? Or is that yes. something that's, you mentioned it earlier? Is that mm-hmm. something you guys talk about? Yes. Yeah, so like when that, you know, when the kid comes for an encounter and they do their animal thing and, they, and, 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 and all that and the ones that want to kind of graduate and get involved in a conservation element. Yeah, we'll certainly talk about that and, and talk about, you know, depending on their maturity level, what level they learn about. But learning that user base that, you know, that just this whole thing of consumptive wildlife use can be very positive for wildlife and putting things back in the public access and all these things. And um it's a uh, matter of fact, uh, Rihanna, the one that went to Texas Tech, was glad she got, I remember she texted me one day, hey, that North American thing you told me about that, I heard about that in class today, <laughs> you know? Uh, so hmm. you get some feedback like that. But yeah, that's something we talk about because, you know, we're, we're in Texas. Most of our operations are here, but we're doing things a lot in Colorado now. Uh, and we're on private ranches that have private wildlife populations and they're making money off of it. And they're, you know, that's how they're paying for not being a parking lot is that they have hunting operations or, or whatever. And they, and they, and, and it's, it's, it hasn't been an obstacle really for the young people so much. Um, you have some, you like, they'll probably never pick up a rifle or a bow, but uh, they, they, they get, they get what it's about, you know? And I hadn't found one yet that doesn't like to fish. You can, I'm telling you on the fishing thing, it doesn't matter if they've never fished or not. They see somebody catch a fish in front of them, they want to get a rod. So we do a lot of that too. 
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, and I wasn't going to hit on that, but now that you mentioned it, I've got friends of mine that, you know, that for some reason killing a fish is okay, but killing an animal is not. There's like some sort of disconnect there, and I've never really quite is. understood that. Um, like people, you know, I've, a guy, you know, I was, as I think you guys know, I was a airline pilot before this, and one of the guys I work with, he's a big fisherman, and and uh, I guess for whatever reason, he didn't know as a hunter, although I talk about it all, all the time. And he's like, um, yeah, it's, it's okay to kill a fish, but not to kill an animal. Like He basically said that to me. And I'm like, dude, like, where is that coming from? And so where does that come from? Like, what's the disconnect there? I don't understand it. I, well, I've thought about this, right? I've really, I've even known people outside of what I do just in my personal life that lean animal rightsy, but they will chop up a snake that comes in their garden with relentless aggression. You know what I mean? It is, there's a disc. I think it's the, the, the cuddle, the cuddly part. Like, you know, like a fish, if you even have a fish in your house, he's in a bowl, you know, he's got a little tank, whatever, but they can relate to something like a, a deer or something and like being like a dog or a pet, I think sometimes maybe. And, you know, it's uh, it's definitely a disconnect, but I've never had a single kid tell me that they're totally opposed to stuff like the hunting side of stuff. But you can tell some of them probably aren't into that part. I haven't had one yet that won't pick up a rod and reel when we offer that to them. And uh, and we don't we don't do hunting expeditions because there are tons of outreaches that do a lot more of that. We do conservation mentoring, and we want them to use skills of photography, art, um, podcasting, media for conservation purposes based out of our expeditions, right? Uh, that's really the heart of it, you know, and because uh, we need people as voices for these wild animals uh, to, to rise up and not be the next generation. They're the now generation. They can be influencers at this moment if they'll turn their social media channels and things toward what we do. And I think that's what we're hitting on. And, um, uh, you know, if someone would say, Chester, would you rather them become a hunter or would you rather them become an influencer for conservation? As long as it falls in that North American model, both is great. But if they can just say, hey, I support this and be an influencer on the conservation side, I think we win even more in the long run, you know, and uh, and stuff like that, you know. I, I, dude, I'm so with you there. Well, first of all, it's less competition in the field. We don't need more hunters out there. We need more people that <laughs> respect funny. hunting. So I, hear you. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to create more hunters. I just want to create more uh, support for hunting. No, I'm kidding. Obviously, I, you know, having more people in the field is a good thing too. Sure, to yeah. some degree, I guess. But um, but we don't want every single person out there sourcing their own food because it would be it would not be good for wildlife. I don't think if everybody needed to do that, but. Um, so, Chester, let's touch a little bit on um, the North American wildlife model. And I feel, and I see this, that, you know, obviously, you know, there, it's not written in stone. There's no, you know, uh, Val Geist and um, Shane Mahoney are kind yeah. of the grandfathers of it. You know, you kind of think, oh, this is this model is like 200 years old. Like it came over with, uh, and Teddy, you know, principles of it are, certainly. Uh, sure. not trying to, But, you know, it's a relatively new model. But it's always being knocked and it's always being vilified. And um, there's people that are probably just straight out anti-consumptive use that, are, you know, are vindicated all the time. And it's kind of an easy target. I feel like it, you know, it's kind of as young as the model is in, in principle, it's, it's already being eroded, right? It's, you know, people are constantly challenging it. 
you know, how do you see the, what do you see the future of it? And it's really inspiring what you're doing there because you're that next generation of, you know, the, the next generation is okay with it. They're they're You're saying, Hey, this is what we do. This is why it's important. This is the good thing. And there's so many great things about it, but I feel like it's, it's constantly under attack. And I worry that, you know, one of the tenets of, of it is science-based wildlife management and, you know, that's constantly being challenged. So let's talk about that. And Jesse, weigh in on this heavily too. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I'll tell you what. I I was, it, it, go ahead. No, sorry, Chester. I'm I'm that's, bad at podcast etiquette. <laughs> go ahead. Bro. No, I just jump think, in first, man. I just think um, you know, thinking on that, it's there's so much emphasis, I think, as someone who produces um content and media in this space. Uh, you know, dealing with that charismatic megafauna that we kind of touched on earlier and, you know, trying to communicate what the real values and real stories are. Um, and just just kind of hearing what, what Kyle was saying and hearing about what you're doing, Chester, and stuff, it kind of uh, a little bit of a realization that a lot of my emphasis and what I do is focused really on the now and really on the, you know, sharing what's happening and what's progressing and very little focus on the education and the new and the next generation. So I just pretty inspired that, you know, a lot of your focus is building up that next generation of, of conservationists and, and kind of the future of who needs to, to pick up these torches. Because when you get into the world and you get into this industry of conservation and, and biologists, a lot of them are, you know, uh, been doing it for a long time is the polite way to say it. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, someone's got to be primed to take the torch, not just professionally, but also in this mm-hmm. volunteer space that we're in too. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. I just, I guess I just wanted to chime in and say, it's pretty inspiring um, that you're, you're working on the next generation that, that needs a real connection, not just be told what to do, you know, needs to be, uh, needs to have that connection to animals to pull on, to, to be inspired, to do more. Well, you know, Jesse, just seeing, you know, transmission and all that, there is, we all have our role to play. Some are more for the now and working through this bigger awareness. My calling my whole life has been kids and wildlife since I was a kid, pretty much. So we all have our, we all have our, our lane here. And in terms of the North American model being vilified and things like that, it is very complex. And I think one of the things is that we, as the hunting part of the world, and I've hunted my whole life. My whole life I've hunted, I've hunted and fished my whole life, um, is I think we've let too many idiots uh, in academia dictate things. And I think sometimes we've been too nice and not challenge people for being worried about being politically correct. And I think maybe there's a solution to that would be because one thing I've learned about the current generation being immersed in them constantly every day is when they are behind a cause they are radically behind the cause and believe in it with 100% conviction. And I think part of that is integrating many of them, like my friends at the Houston Safari Club Camp Foundation are big about giving grants to wildlife students who support hunting and fishing. So every year they give grants to try to get the right folks in to some of these things to integrate. But I think there's a lot of problems. We're in a media project. We're doing media right now. It's my podcast thing here. I live in the media. That's how I make my living. Um, and when you take the word trophy hunting as it has been, and we have a Cecil the lion situation, you start naming animals and you start doing this. It's a war that's very difficult to win in the media front. 
And I honestly don't know what that means for our future. I think it's going to look, unfortunately, a lot different. But I do think there is a glimmer of hope that I have seen the last few years that I believe could be a saving grace to the hunting industry, especially in North America. And I think it's sourcing your own meat. There are many people wanting to eat clean, many people tired of the factory farming experience and these things like this. And I have talked to five or six women in particular of the last three or four years that have never hunted, didn't grow up in hunting families, started hunting to source their own meat. And I wrote an article in Texas Fishing Game called Trophy Cooking. And the idea of maybe in some of our social posts and the way we present, we should start promoting what's on the plate as much as what's hanging on the wall and showing the fact that, hey, we're using this to feed our families and there is great health benefits. I think that connection has as as much an opportunity to sort of stem the tide of what's happening against hunting as anything I've ever seen. Yeah, I think you're on to something there. So how do we change that narrative and what we do? Because again, we're we're out there with the the grip and grins all the time, right? And yeah, um, I am too. It doesn't seem to be a popular thing. It just yeah, it, it, it doesn't it, resonate well. It's really hard, you know. One of the things is even um, I've been in in meetings with different conservation groups over the years. It's hard to get deep stuff available to people on social media to consume. You kind of have to put the stuff out there that people want, and then somehow integrate the other stuff in there to make people think, I think it's not going to be an overnight fix, but I think the, the talking about the consumptive use as being a positive and also the part of, you know, let's talk about predators in this realm. That's the hardest thing in the world to get across. I can get across to almost anyone other than a devout anti that I, if I kill a deer and I eat, eat that and feed my family, most people are like, okay, fine. But if I talk about shooting a wolf, or a mountain lion. That's a whole different discussion. And I think there is an opportunity for that to change by education. One of my ongoing things on my podcast and in my writing efforts has been what I call, you know, the great North American wildlife conflict, which is just now beginning and it's going to keep getting worse as human populations grow, wildlife populations grow and predators in particular grow. I think people are going to start having especially in western states a different look at predators when Fifi the poodle goes out for a walk in the park and, you know, a gray wolf comes up and eats Fifi the poodle on the leash. People, we're seeing it with hogs here in Texas. Uh, we have 3 million plus hogs in Texas and they're attacking people, hurting a lot of pets. And I have personally talked to people who have reached out to me and told me, hey, I don't hunt. I listen to your radio show. It's awesome. I love the wildlife stuff. I've never hunted in my life, but I'm about to get a rifle, start killing pigs because they messed up my yard. They attacked my dog. So I think there's even a realm of that. It's just being aggressive in educational efforts and being humble too. not like, hey, I'm the great hunter. I have all the answers. Come with the humble but truth and say, hey, this let this speak for itself. This is what's going on. Let us be a solution to the problem that's going on. And uh there is no silver bullet for the beast we're facing, but I think there are a lot of things we can do collectively, like Jesse with transmission, different things going on out there. 
that we can all work and in 10 years look back, hey, we might not have made a ton of ground, but we stopped the tide against us. And to me, right now, that's a win. Yeah, I think that um, just kind of speaks to uh, vice chair with one campfire and kind of what our yep. mission is there and, you know, sharing kind of the hunter heritage and, and the authentic view and from, from the, an internal process, you know, looking at how we share this message, how do we, you know, show a deeper meaning uh, to what hunting is and what this North American wild mm-hmm. or North American model of conservation is and, you know, why we do what we do. Um, and what we've really found and what we really try to communicate and what we really focus on now is that no matter where you are, or what kind of views you are, anti-hunting, hunting, partial or whatever, everyone can connect to um, that plate of food on the table, where mm-hmm. it came from, how it came to there. So at the end of the day, everybody connects over food. So if we mm-hmm. can highlight kind of those not necessarily saying, um, you know, that sourcing your own ingredients is the only way to do it, but just mm-hmm. saying that that is the interest point that people will pay attention to. You know, if we talk about food and you talk about where it comes from and, and what, how, how valuable that connection is to your food, um, mm-hmm. and that can come from a variety of sources, but that's, sure. that's kind of the common ground where we can all meet mm-hmm. and all kind of at least sit down and have a conversation you know, if you take away the food, you know, people are going to stand in their own camps and, and not talk. But at the end of the day, everybody has to eat. And um, it's always an interest point um, for, for people to discuss because that's, you know, you talked about earlier about how um, it's complicated. I think socially and kind of human dynamics, we all want black and white. We want to understand yeah. that this goes here and that goes there. Mm-hmm. I believe in this, mm-hmm. not this and this. And you get into, mm-hmm. you know, real life and real issues and you... <laughs> if you really do pay attention, you understand that it's all gray, it's all connected, it's all messy, and you just have to go through it. Yeah. Great. Awesome. And that's good to hear confirmation on kind of some, a few ideas I've had about the wild game and stuff. And one of the things my wife, Lisa, is kind of working on, and it'll probably be a year off, is um, taking some of the the people, the kids that have come through and teaching them to cook wild game. And maybe her writing a little bit of a curriculum on that, uh, on, you know, recipes, but also why it's important and stuff like that. So that's something that's kind of in the works for us. So thank you for confirming that that might, might be the track to go on. Uh, Chester, I want to touch base on touching base again on the North American model of conservation. Mm -hmm. And one of, um, one of the things we're seeing more readily is people going into the science or the biology side of things that are, are not kind of from the, quote, consumptive user side of things. You know, in the old days, it was, you know, a lot of the biologists would go in because they they came from a family of hunters. They cared about wildlife. They cared about conservation. Yeah. And that's where they wanted to be. I know the Wild Sheep Foundation, this is something that's been discussed. I know uh, Renee Thornton, uh, Kevin Hurley have attended some TWS stuff. Mm-hmm. Um the wildlife society uh, yep. to to be a bit more proactive and, and intentional about consumptive users and their space in the conservation world. Cause I think what's happening is there's, there's a been a bit of a shift over the past sort of few generations of people that weren't from the hunting background, maybe even anti-hunting that are going into mm-hmm. the conservation space and they do not support consumptive use on the, on the landscape. So um, is that something you've seen at all or, or talked about? Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're fostering these, these young kids and you're pushing them into the conservation space. And some of them, you know, you talked about Rihanna, 
you know, great example. You know, that's the person we want making decisions for wildlife, right? Um, mm-hmm. From a consumptive user standpoint. So, what does that look like, and is that something that's uh, crossed your plate at all? You know what? It's mainly crossed my plate in my media work. Like, so I'm, I'm constantly reaching out to fish and game parks and wildlife departments for interviews, and uh, I have actually had people in parks and wildlife positions that I have spoken with that were devoutly not devoutly animal rights, period, uh, in positions to give media information to mainly what is a hook and bullet situation, you know, deer hunting regulations and things like that. And, it, and it's amazing that uh, you know, a government employee will, uh, what they'll spout on the phone sometimes asking a simple question about a regulation. And so I've seen it in that realm, in the media part, big time, huge shift in the last, probably mainly last 15 years. And I think it's a generational thing uh, that's come out. And um, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you mentioned like the people being so against the consumptive part. I think a lot of it starts in that media realm, uh, but also in that scientific realm. You mentioned the Wildlife Society. I had the privilege of speaking to the um, uh, Stephen F. Austin University Wildlife Society uh, last year. Uh, about wild sheep conservation and wild turkey conservation. Great group. You could tell it was a very diverse group. Um, And I think one thing that we should all do, I think every one of us that doesn't mind speaking in public, any opportunity we get to go outside of a hunting organization to speak, we should. I think that it's hard to vilify people if they're right in front of you and they see who you are. It's a lot harder. It's easier to do that behind a keyboard or on your phone, right? But when you see them and you make a connection, that's a lot harder. So interpersonal thing is very, very important. Um, I just, you know, um, I try to get paid for speaking because I have to make a living somehow doing this. But um, things like the Wildlife Society and things like that, I'll go to my own expense all day long trying to make those connections and answer those questions and things like that. I think that's important, but it's, 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 it's way different than it's ever been. It's almost a completely different world in that realm. And you mentioned like the megafauna thing, you know, the, the, that's a language these by I'm always on like wild Turkey captures and releases or fish stockings and stuff out gathering that info. And uh, they all want to be involved in megafauna. That's like, if they actually mentioned that it's hilarious. Uh, but they're really into like snakes and bugs and stuff like that. So there is most people, I think, back in the day got involved because they wanted to work on a deer ranch in Texas or help with elk conservation or cheap or work in the ocean and be Jacques Cousteau. Now, I think it's a lot of it. They get our social media and our Internet has allowed us to be so into a micro niche of what we do that you can go down to the infinite level of what you want to do. And like, oh, I want to be a praying mantis biologist. And somebody's going to try to get a job as a praying mantis biologist because they're really into praying mantis. Uh, and so I think that is, it's, it's, it, that's very difficult. But once again, I think that goes back to supporting young people for this and engaging them in a positive way, you know, positive engagement in a positive way and unapologetic too. I've never, and I never will apologize for hunting. Never going to do it. Not going to do it. But you don't have to be an egotist about it either. You can also do it in a humble way, you know. 
So you talked about, you know, you guys are media rock stars and do all this great work in the, you know, online and, and in print and that sort of stuff. But what is a, an average guy like uh, that me that doesn't have that outreach, that doesn't have those connections? Um, you know, what can sort of the average hunter do to sort of improve our lot in life? Um, so, you know, you, there's the media side, there's the public speaking side. You know, what, what else can we do? What, what job can we do a better, like connection with the food? You mentioned that earlier. Is there anything else we can do just for someone else that just wants to sort of stem this tide of, you know, anti-hunting type stuff? Jesse, you want to take this one first, buddy? Well, I'll just I'll just go easy off the top. I think a real a real thing to do is to to focus on being a real person. Um, mm. Own who you are and and own what you do. Um, I think the hunting world um, comes from a history of you know fl- fist clenching um, as mm. opposed to sharing and understanding. I think my kind of motivation when I get into this. Um, you know, when I decided to kind of share more messages and getting into filmmaking in this conservation space was I went out and I started hunting and then I came back and, um, had this, what we talked about, like, you know, people would post pictures of dead fish on the boat. You know, I live on the West Mm -hmm. coast of BC fishing and and all that is very normal. Everyone's profile pictures of dead fish, you know, even with blood Mm -hmm. dripping down it. No problem. You post a paw of a dead bear that you hunted. And truth be told, my company has been fired from organizations because a personal post of a bear paw was posted online. So it was this like conundrum of like, oh, you clearly don't understand what the truth is behind all of this because I've lived it and breathed it and I have clarity on, on what it is. And I understand the connection I've never felt and can never, um, recreate that kind of connection what it is i remember the first time i went hunting as soon as i stepped outside the vehicle and i remember when my foot hit the ground and my i went on a bear hunt that was my first time and i instantly felt that feeling of like this is different this is a level of connection that i've never felt before and i grew Mm -hmm. up in the outdoors i grew up in northern bc i you know did everything um that you could do um, but there was just something so human and so deep with that connection. I remember that first step out of, I had a Honda element up a gravel road mm-hmm. in, North, mm-hmm. in Northern Vancouver Island. And we did that. So, you know, realizing that there's this disconnect. So um, all that to just say that, you know, being real and understanding who you are um, as a person and being confident mm-hmm. with that, but not being, you know, super aggro and and being angry that you have to prove a point, but just, know that you're willing to have a, and, and letting people know you're willing to have a conversation. That's great. You know, um, I've been good friends with Ted Nugent since I was 19 years old and, uh, I've learned a lot watching him at book signings and stuff with people. And, um, and just the, how he talks to people, looks them in the eye and shakes their hand. He's always talking about, look, man, we're told not to look like hunters in public, look like a hunter in public wear your camo, support your organization, be proud of that. But also when you, when you talk to people one-on-one, dignify them as a human being that, that always stuck with me. And also the enthusiasm factor. I mean, look, and that's changed a lot in outdoor media, but back in the day when I was a kid, you'd have guys other than like Bill Dance and Jimmy Houston, who were great fishermen. They were fun. Like local fishing hosts would catch a 13 pound bass and be like, look, Earl, that's a very pretty fish. And that's about the level of excitement you got. And you go to a football game and they're dressed like maniacs, you know, or a hockey game. And when they're wanting them to fight, you know, 
And I think there's a thing to the enthusiasm factor. Be in, be enthusiastic in a, in a, in a fun way with, about what we do. And I'm always like this Ovis Amon. This, you know, that's a Nargali. That's a, that's a future musical project, by the way. Uh, uh, naming stuff after something I'm into so that people have a reason to ask me what that's about. And I have a bridge to talk to them about conservation. It's like if you wear a Wild Sheep Society British Columbia cap or a T-shirt, that can be an ambassadorship out to where you go, you know, and things like that. And uh, I think just little things make a big difference. But looking people in the eye, being enthusiastic and dignifying them as a person, no matter what their beliefs are, can go a long, long. You, you keep mentioning, Jesse, the human you know, part of this. And and I think that's so important. You know, we got to get away from uh, just the social media dialect and get into interpersonal as well. I think that's important. You got to have all of it, but I think that interpersonal communication when possible at the job site, at your church group, and like a lot of churches and civic groups in America, at least have wild game dinners, you know, uh, being the guy that brings the cool ingredient no one else has. And then say, Hey, can I talk for five minutes or 10 minutes just about how I source my meat or something like that? I think things like that are great platforms. Yeah, awesome. Really good stuff, guys. Uh, let's let's just do a bit of a transition here and talk a little bit about, so uh, you're the editor for the Texas Fish and Game magazine, I believe. Uh, yes. Do I have that correct? Yes, sir. Chester? Okay, cool. Um, talk to us about what's going on in Texas with conservation. It can be any species. I know you do a lot of turkey work, but I know, yeah. you know there's some outad stuff going on there. I'd love to hear about what's going on conservation-wise in Texas. Man, there's so much, you know, um, um, there's a really cool study right now being done by Louisiana State University in conjunction with Parks and Wildlife tracking eastern wild turkey movements. We actually have a few Merriams. We have mainly Rio Grandes and we have about 10,000 Easterns are restoring, bringing birds in from Maine to other states to restore populations of eastern birds. And they're tracking their movements with GPS trackers. And it's really cool. Uh, I got a story coming on that next week. Uh, at fishgame.com and a podcast this week actually about the Louisiana side of that thing because I just right across the border from Louisiana. Uh, the sheep thing, you know, we went through, uh, got our sheep back up to historic numbers, which they believe Texas was never a big, huge sheep state. About 1500 was about, they thought what the numbers were at, around, you know, and before 1900. Got them there and then Movi showed up and we're down to a thousand, maybe a little lower than that now. And that's been in four years. So we have problems with disease now in Texas. And uh, Parks and Wildlife have done an incredible job. Texas Bighorn Society, Wild Sheep Foundation, everyone has been involved in that. Um, and they're working on some things I can't say right now media-wise, but uh, in terms of I know some things are going to happen to be very proactive. But something that I can talk about is that Audad issue because Audad, Barbary sheep, quote-unquote, were released in Texas in the Palo Duro Canyon in 1954, I think. And they were released in California. They were released in New Mexico. And you have these free-ranging populations of this animal that gets 350 pounds for a male. They can breed twice a year, have twins almost every time. You can't kill them. They're unbelievably smart. I hate to say it. They're smarter than any bighorn ever thought about being. They're very wary, unbelievably smart, hard to hunt. And they're a problem is because they will outcompete native wildlife for food. Also, they found out that they can carry Movi. So that's an, a new revelation. And Texas is 97% privately owned. And when an outfitter who, you know, a landowner in the Trans-Pecos of Texas may have 50,000 acres 
and they can charge 5,000 a pop for a ram and easily source 20 rams a year off their property without touching the population, it's an issue. So they're, they're not, you know, there's no way to stop it, but there are ways they're going to try to work around it on the available land and manage for sheep and things like that. That's a challenge. They're doing a great job on that. And, um, you know, it's the feral hog thing is a constant issue with us. Um, you know, there's so many of those going on, but it's positive, you know, like the Texas Bighorn Society doing incredible work with guzzlers in very arid parts of the state for desert bighorn sheep. Uh, that's really a positive. And we're seeing a lot of positive strides, but definitely had a hiccup with the disease thing. But every state, every province that has wild sheep has dealt with it, you know. And I think we're going to work around that in Texas and we're going to see get back to where we were. But we're just going to have to deal with the disease issue. Right on. Um, now, a lot of Texas, as you just mentioned, is privately owned. How does it work with uh if you draw a tag there, what does it what does that look like, and how do you guys manage that with so much private land? Are you talking sheep tags? Yeah, sorry, bighorn specifically. Yeah, exactly. So there's very few. So most of the tags go to private landowners, and they can pretty much do what they want with them. Sell them. They they sell them because they get piles of money for it, right? But um, also tags are given to uh, auction off at like the sheep show or the Texas Bighorn Societies event or the Texas Wildlife Association. So that money goes back into the fund. And we also have a tag or two, depending on the year, I think that it's like a, the whole state can get a shot at, at getting. And for some reason, they keep drawing the wrong name. It hasn't said Chester Moore on that yet. I don't know what the problem is. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> uh, I, I applied for that sucker for years and I got it. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> everybody, everybody sheep hunts knows about tags, but uh, it's it, there's not a lot of tags. You know, if you looked at 1500 animal at the peak, not going to be a lot of tags available, but there are available mainly on private land, but the state does offer them. And, uh, you know, some great rams have been taken by public hunters that have been out and got to take these huge desert bighorn rams on elephant mountain wildlife management area down in Alpine. And, uh, but the rest of the state really is not tags. It's just, you buy a license and you pay somebody to go hunt their land or, you know, there is national forest in certain places where I live, but there's a hunter per deer at least on our national forest because of the lack of public, lack of private land and public land. So when you go hunting, do you do, I know you do a ton of fishing there in Texas, but yeah. when you go hunting, do you, is it all typically in Texas or you go to different States? How's, how do you, do I've you hunted, do I've hunted in Texas. I've hunted in Arkansas. I've hunted in Louisiana. I've hunted in Michigan. Mm-hmm. I've hunted in California. I've hunted in New York, you know, I've hunted all those places and I've fished in a lot more places than that even. So most of my hunting is done in Texas, you know, budgetary reasons you know i'm here do a lot of deer do quite a bit of deer hunting a lot of hog hunting here and i try to turkey hunt when i can i love waterfowl uh i just there's only so many things you can do at a time so i haven't done a lot of waterfowl the last few years but i love waterfowl hunting. it's a ball i mean that's that's fun stuff uh have you you haven't hunted sheep yet you don't you're still part of less than one club or what i'm very less than one i am uh yeah we're definitely the less than one club once again, they haven't called my name out. Uh, I was expecting it this year, but uh, no. And I ever, and I, I do do a lot of like the, uh, you know, the raffles, you know, I'll, when I can afford a raffle ticket somewhere or like the super tag they have in Nevada. I'm always on that one because you can get a California bighorn there. That'd be kind of a cool way to start. But uh, I don't know. Haven't, haven't gotten one yet. I would love to. Of course, the dream would be to get one with a bow because I bow hunt a lot. But uh Okay. I, I, if I did that, I would only probably try that with a desert sheep. Um, I don't know if I, because I, because got to realize I have to go train for a year to go hunt 
in like the Yukon or somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, you know, at those elevations and those temperatures, I've got to, but uh, that's the dream, man. But you know what? I honestly, being able to photograph them and use that to raise awareness to conservation is just as fulfilling. You know, it's like getting the, the ribeye steak and the baked potato and you're, and you're full and someone offers you a cheesecake. I'm not going to turn the cheesecake down. That's the sheet tag to me is the cheesecake. I love cheesecake and I will be excited and I will do a backflip and probably cry. But if I never get it, that's okay too, because I get to hunt them with my camera and use media platforms to teach people about these great animals and the work like the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia are doing through my writings. Right on. So for you, is there like the species that, you know, is, is your species? Is it, is it sheep? Is it turkey? Uh, you know, not, I know you love all wildlife. I'm not, that's not what I'm, where I'm going. But no, it's it definitely one standout? sheep. It's definitely sheep. And um, a few years ago, I was in prayer in 2019 asking for direction. And I, this, my words, higher calling, were kind of impressed upon me. And I knew I needed to go back and go to what I would have written about for free when I started my career. Because I've written about sheep over the years, but I, I'm in the wildlife business. So I have to write about what they send me a check for. So I'm happy to write about any hunting and fishing or wildlife. But uh, so I started focusing a lot more on sheep and said, I'm going to dedicate my main thrust of my efforts on the sheep issue because i think it needs to be important that's been an exciting journey so definitely sheep they've been and i had these scrapbooks that i i would sit in my dad's lap when i was a little boy and we would put together we would go to the thrift store and buy like for a nickel a piece all these outdoor magazines and we would cut out pictures of where we wanted to go hunt and our favorite animals and i found them after my dad passed away eight years ago in a storage unit i thought they were gone except one i had one and I found all these other ones and the most dominant animal from five-year-old Chester Moore on was wild sheep. There was stone sheep and bighorns and there was urials and you name it. It was all wild sheep. There were like every page would have a sheep on it somewhere. So even as a kid, they just kind of blew my mind, you know? And you know what? I'm not completely grown up and I'm still a kid in a lot of ways and they have, uh, they still blow my mind. Awesome. Well, I was kind of leading you there with the the higher calling wildlife logo is a doll sheep and you got Ova salmon and a, a, a Marco or an Argali on your shirt. So that kind of gave it away. But uh, <laughs> I, so now let's let's drill down one level deeper. Is it doll sheep or is there, I know you love all wild sheep. But is there one that stands out for you? It's a, I think it's a doll sheep on your logo, right? I love the doll sheep. Uh, it, it has a, a spiritual significance, you know, the lamb of God. So that's that's the reason for a doll sheep on that. But I also love doll sheep a lot. Uh, uh, I would say, you know, like everybody, probably a stone sheep, you know, uh, stone sheep blow my mind. But it, that could change tomorrow. It could be a desert bighorn in the morning, depending on how I feel, you know. So uh, or, you know, it could be an Altai Argali or whatever. Funny story. The first time I ever saw an Argali, I've never seen one in the wild, but was my my girlfriend is now my wife went to a college uh, there were two campuses. She went to the one 30 minutes away a year before I did. And she calls me on an early cell phone and said, you got to come to the biology department. I've never seen a bighorn sheep this big in my life. It's unbelievable. It's twice as big as the bighorn <laughs> sheep we saw them out. And you got to come up. So I literally drove up there and it was, I never seen an Argali and it was a full body Argali, like an Altai Argali, mega full body mount. And I'm like, Oh, you know, and uh, so it could be what I the picture I look at may inspire me, but I love them all. And um, doll sheep are right up there with stone sheep for me, though, dude, just because of um, I think I don't know. It's cool the way thin horns, you know, their, their horns spray out and 
really cool looking animals and so majestic and to see that white out there on those on those mountains or to see that contrast with the white and the brown on the on the beautiful stone sheep but i could talk about this for hours i know we only have a few minutes so i'll stop it <laughs> yeah i love it well we're gonna have to get you hooked up with uh Mr. Bone here and get you up in BC and you can come. I know you can't hunt without, without an outfit or you can't hunt stone sheep, but come on maybe on Jesse's hunt or something like that. And you can, uh, you guys can tell the story. You guys can do something creative. I'm sure the, the two of you together could put something nice together. That would yeah, be an honor like and a great privilege. Plan. That would be an honor and a privilege, man, just to get to get to get to document all that stuff, you know? And, uh, and I want to salute you guys, for what you do with using this media platform for the cause of wild sheep and wild sheep. Wildlife conservation, the North American model, and all the media plot because this this matters. What you guys are doing matters. It makes a difference, and so thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate it. We're certainly passionate about it. Um, yeah, I, I certainly speak for myself on that, and I think Jesse would too. Um, so Chester, we've taken an hour of your day here, and I know you're a busy guy. Um, Jesse, do we have anything to um, close off with? Uh, any last remarks or thoughts? Uh, no, I think I'm, uh, just thankful for your time, Chester. It, it was, it was great talking, learning a bit more about your ministry and, and kind of the, the purpose that you have behind all that you do. It's, um, it's, it's really good. And it's, it's good to, you know, consider those, uh, coming up and inspiring the next generation and, and, um, putting some effort into the future of, of, uh, of the conservation work that we are so passionate about. So appreciate you, Chester. Well, I appreciate you guys, and it's an honor and a privilege. You know, uh, a lot of these kids that we work with don't get a chance, and we kind of like to take the one in the back of the line and give them a ticket to the front. And hopefully, you know, the wildlife encounters are important, but the ones that get to make that transition into the conservation world is becoming an increasing focus. And we're very excited, very humbled that we get to do it. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I love it. Appreciate it, brother. Um, so if people want to check out the great work that you're doing over there, uh, give us, uh, maybe not all of them because there's so much you're involved in, but give us your leading platforms where people can check you out. Yeah, so Higher Calling Wildlife on Facebook, um, at the Chester Moore, that's at the Chester Moore, on Instagram, and uh, highercalling.net is my blog, and uh, you can check that out, the Higher Calling Wildlife podcast, and a new one I have called Dark Outdoors, which is about dangers in the wild, so... Lots of ways to connect and appreciate the chance to plug my platforms. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and look forward to a lot more great stuff coming out of your camp. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. Thank you guys so much. The perception of hunting you know, ha has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters, to change it back. And we've spent the last few decades trying you know, espousing that, that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, we've, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what, what we have to do is, is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side. We have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand.